Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Alright, we're back with the uh, Bullshit Filter, Syria Civil War, Episode 8. Mm-hmm. Hey, baby, how are you? Hey, sweetums, how are you? Well, I'm good. <laughs> we uh, Warmed up now? Last episode, we started talking about the Lebanese Civil War, which led us into the Eisenhower Doctrine, which led us into the Suez Crisis. Back to Lebanon. Yes. So, uh, as we said, in, in sort of 58, there was a bit of a civil war in Lebanon uh, between the Muslims and the Christians, um, over the Muslims' desire to join the United Arab Republic. The Maronite Christians were like, fuck that shit. And uh, Eisenhower sent in U.S. troops. And with his support, the Christians managed to maintain control of Lebanon. And uh, it, even after the Muslims became the majority of the population around 1960, Lebanon remained pro-Western, relatively stable, even managed to prosper economically as part of the the U.S. capitalist system up until the mid-'70s, at which point in time Beirut was the financial capital known as the Paris of the Middle East. Ah. I was just Mm. going to ask a a quick question. Do you think it was the economic stability that kept a lid on the um, different religious groups um, who obviously could have theoretically sh- have, should have already been going at each other's throats. But I would imagine that just the fact that most people, you know, the economy is good. People are able to get jobs and uh, have fun and take care of their families and pay bills and go on vacations. I imagine that went a long way to keeping things relatively calm. Look, I think that there's some truth in that. I think that if you have money flowing and people have a relatively subsistent standard of living uh, like that's why we're always trying to build a middle class is it provides a buffer between the rich people and the poor people uh i don't know how much of that was true though in lebanon at the time i think there was still a big differential between the quality of life the incomes for, particularly for the christians the maronites mm-hmm. there would have been some muslims that prospered as well of course but uh i think there was a lot of economic disparity in the country right through that period, but the Maronites controlled the army and the propaganda systems and the police and all of that kind of good stuff. But there was there was some economic uh, security as well there for other people. If you jump into the Googles, folks, and sort of look up Lebanon circa 1974 images, you'll see lots of uh, photos, postcards, like the old travel postcards. Uh, it looked great. I'd go there. It looked... Uh, Pretty beautiful bit, sort of like Miami. I'm, I'm, I've got photos of people. Oh, it's a bit like Paris, actually. I guess that's why it's called Paris of the Middle East. Paris or Rome, lit up at night. People sitting outside on the thoroughfares, dining. Nice. The city was, you know, just beautiful, pretty palm trees everywhere in the city square. It really, you know, looked like a great modern city, uh, circa 1974. But uh, things were about to go off the fucking deep end. There were not not only financial inequality, there were deep social inequalities. Uh, Even though, as you said, I think in our last episode, according to the Constitution, there was, I think the president had to be a Maronite, the prime Mm -hmm. minister had to be a Sunni, Sunni, and the Speaker of Parliament had to be a Shia Muslim. But the way it translated, the, uh, the, the Christians, particularly the Maronite Christians, uh, still managed to control most of, the, most of the country and most of the wealth. But on top of that, uh, for the sort of previous uh, 
sort of five or six years, there had been the increasing presence of the PLO in Lebanon, mm. the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which had moved its headquarters to Beirut after they got kicked out of uh, Jordan, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, sort of that sort of background. But uh, the PLO, again, if you... If you were around in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, even into the 2000s, you heard about the PLO almost constantly in the news. Um, So we should talk a little bit about that because it's uh, it's an important part of the history. Just real quick, I mean, uh, yeah, I remember being a kid in the... uh in the uh, 70s, uh, early 80s, whenever I heard that on the news, I didn't know what the heck the PLO was. I just remember being afraid. I remember people dying, uh, terrorist attacks or killings or whatever. I just remember just just feeling fear, just those three letters. Even though I had no idea, I just knew that there was violence and death around them, and I hoped that they you know, were never, never were going to be anywhere I lived. I, but I, they did a very good job. And obviously the news agencies trying to, uh, trying to get you to watch did a very good job of describing their activities. Yeah, the PLO, I should point out, should not be confused with PIL. bit of public image limited you familiar with pil ray i've I've heard of them i don't know them very well guy by the name of johnny rotten uh post sex pistols bit of uh uh, i don't know whatever you fucking call that genre post post punk fucking uh, yeah pop rock i don't know good stuff anyway plo always sending me like it should be a rap band or something like that um (laughs) PLO, uh, quick background on the PLO. So they were founded in 1964 with the purpose of the liberation of Palestine through armed struggle. And a deliberate tactic was attacking Israeli civilians uh, as a way of trying to, uh, I guess, influence the removal of Israel out of the Palestinian territories. Now, it was created through the merger of several Fedayeen groups. Now, the Fedayeen were guerrilla fighters. And the history of the Fedayeen itself is actually really, really interesting. The word translates, I believe, as those who sacrifice themselves. And it goes back to the 11th century. It was used to describe the Hashashins. The Hashashins, yeah, man, they were a group of Ismaili uh, Shia who waged guerrilla warfare against the Sunni and the Christian Crusaders. And Hashashin is where we get the word assassin from. These guys would run around and just kill mostly like military and political leaders. They would just sneak up and fucking whack you. So the word assassin comes from these Islamic hitmen, basically the Hashashins. Now, it was claimed in some sources, including Marco Polo, I kid you not, that the leader of the Hashashin order would get his assassins to smoke hashish or eat hashish before they went on their assassination missions. Now, anyone who smoked a joint 
knows how likely it is that you're going to get high and then go, hey, man, you're going to be really cool right now. <laughs> let's, let's go fucking kill someone. <sighs> like, I've only been high once, as our regular listeners know, and it was only in the last year when a new friend of mine fed me some uh, weed-laced ice cream uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a shit ton of weed oil in this ice cream and I was on an empty stomach in the middle of the day and I end up baked out of my fucking brain without really knowing what was going on. I realised eventually, but first of all, I thought, oh, shit, I feel weird. Um, <clears throat> and it was highly unpleasant, mostly, I think, because I wasn't expecting it. And Chrissy went out that night. I got home, she went out, and I was alone with a baby. <laughs> And Shit. not able to, you know, maintain a coherent thought for more than two seconds. Anywho, nothing bad happened. It was all good. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I got through it, but it was it was tough. Um, I anyway, you were going to say that you assassinated a uh, bag of chips as opposed to the uh, the, the <laughs> legitimate target. But as long as I wanted, you, you and Fox are fine, everything's fine. I wanted to assassinate the guy who gave me the weed ice cream. <laughs> Uh, he ended but up. Went for I, a bag of chips instead. I texted him a couple of days later and was like, "Dude, what the fuck?" He was like, "Yeah, I think I got. I think I put too much in because like, apparently, and he's a regular smoker and apparently it fucked him up as well." Anyway, <laughs> I just think it's anyone who thought that the assassins smoke or ate weed before they went on their assassination missions had obviously never done weed, <laughs> right? Because the last yeah. thing that you want to do is get up and go and try and shoot, you know, stab someone or kill someone <laughs> after you've done that. You just want to watch a shitty 80s comedy and yeah. uh, and just laugh your ass off, right? Anyway. Now, modern scholars think that the connection between the two words, hashish and hashashin, uh, is just confusion. It's just they sounded familiar. Right. And so people went, oh, well, they must smoke hashish, but had nothing to do. Now... Fans of the Dune series of books, Dune, 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 depending on how you want to pronounce that, might recognize the term fedayeen because the elite Freeman soldiers uh, on Dune are known as the mm. Fedakin, uh, which is sort of, it was an allusion that Frank Herbert used to the word fedayeen. So there you go. Obviously, right. in the book, it's very much set in like a Middle Eastern country and it's all very, or a planet that's basically the Middle East and you know, it's desert. Anyway, so there you go. Quick quick question. When we were doing the show, the previous show that we just did, and we mentioned Mustafaria or Mustafariat, how did we not make Star Wars references? How did that get by? Well, man, like you can't expect me to think of everything. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't think of it either. I'm yeah. like, Mustafa. Anyway, so anyway, I, I that just or even popped into my head. I apologize. Please go on. Or even P-L-O-N. A Lion King reference wasn't Mustafa the bad guy in the Lion King or some fucking Disney uh, cartoon. That's where they know. took. That's where they took the uh, the planet where they took the council and killed them all. They had Anakin. Who had turned bad by then killed yeah, all the accounts. Yeah. Anyway, so, so pre sorry. no no we prequel missed an opportunity there. No, and I just apologize to everyone who's listening. No prequel trilogy references in our shows, man. Let's no, let's not degrade let's not degrade ourselves. We'll make homoerotic references up the wazoo, but let's not degrade ourselves by mentioning <laughs> the prequel trilogy. All right, deal. All right. Um, so throughout the 1960s, as I indicated before, the PLO was actually based in Jordan, but then they tried to overthrow King Hussein of Jordan in the late 60s, and he was like, ah, oh, no, that's that's no, not on. So the they, they were all kicked out of uh, Jordan, and they relocated to Lebanon, just up the road, really. And then in 1967, the PLO merged with Fatah, which had been founded by a number of guys, but most recognisably Yasser Arafat, who then, when they merged, became the chairman of the PLO. Now, Arafat, very, very uh, well-known international figure during the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, I think he finally died in the early 2000s. Um, major figure in this sort of whole episode. 
Now, Fatah, which people have probably heard about as well, is uh, a Palestinian nationalist political party created by Arafat and other members of the Palestinian diaspora who were determined to win their country back from the Israelis. They were actually mostly university educated, uh, educated in the West, some of them. These were Mm -hmm. intelligent uh, men. And, you know, you look at it from their perspective, they had a country and uh, a bunch of imperialist nations... uh, arbitrarily said, sorry, half your country is no longer yours now. We're carving it out for the Jews. And then, you know, as we know, then in the next sort of decade or two, the Jews took even more of it. And uh, they weren't happy about that. Just think about how you would feel, listener, if half of your country was just carved up all of, oh, well, if you're an Australian Aboriginal or an American Indian, you probably know what that feels like. Hey, we're going to take this country now. Um, so the Palestinians obviously weren't happy about that, still unhappy about it, and I can understand that. Yeah, there were two major exodus, 1948-1967, um, when uh, you know, 100, 000, hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees had to go to Lebanon, which threw off the population numbers there. But yeah, so these people have been kicked off their land. You know, you're expecting to grow up and to uh, maybe be in the same place your parents were, and suddenly that's not happening. It doesn't matter that you're college-educated in the West. You know when you've been wronged, and it's their desire to do something about it. So the PLO, now based in Lebanon, has the support of about 400,000 Palestinian refugees that are in refugee camps in Lebanon. And eventually the PLO had about 23,000 troops, which was larger than the Lebanese army. And they tried to take control of Lebanon. Again, let's remember, this is a country which is ostensibly controlled by the the Christians, the Christian minority. It was mm-hmm. artificially created by the French. PLO come in, a lot of Palestinians there. Muslims are definitely the majority uh, of the country by the 60s uh, and early 70s, and the PLO decide, you know what, fuck this shit that the French created by putting the Christians in control. It's time for us to take control. And keeping in mind as well that the the Muslim majority were poor and relatively underrepresented uh, politically and uh, economically in the country. So it's a civil war that's... I, I wouldn't really position it as sectarian as more about the poor rising up against the wealthy elite. Right. Economic rebellion, yeah. Hey, um, not not that I'm trying to cut you off or anything. Let me, let me know when I can uh, kind of jump into the start of the Civil War. Yeah, okay. We're getting there soon. I just wanted to j- put yeah, some numbers absolutely. around uh, what I mentioned. So the Maronites, uh, this is, you know, by the, the early 70s, still held 40% of the best jobs, according to one uh, report that I read. Sunni Muslims held 27% and Shia only had 3.3%, even though the Muslims were uh, by and far the the majority in the country. Now, the Maronites were only, I, I think, like 60% of the Christian population. So the Christian Maronites held 40% of the best jobs. Let's say the non-Maronite Christians held another sort of 20%. Then you got the Sunni and the Shia on top of that. So majority of the population underrepresented in terms of the you know income earning capacity and uh, politically. So again, not really a sectarian revolution as such, even though it probably does end up along those lines eventually. Yeah. Um, and and the, the Muslim groups were more sort of left wing. They wanted, you know, uh, what we would call um, progressive mm-hmm. uh, changes. They wanted more freedom. They wanted more equitable distribution of wealth and power in the country, where the Christian parties were more right wing, yeah. more that you know, sort like of conservative command and control. Communism. 
Well, you could have said Democrats versus Republicans, but then we would have laughed because we know they're both right-wing parties. But yes. And now the Maronites, I wanted to point this out, the Maronites had a paramilitary division called the Phalanges, Mm. which obviously is based on the phalanx, which we know all about because we've talked about it for fucking three years on the Alexander Show. (laughs) Phalanx is... Unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't use. They didn't use sarissas. Unfortunately, so I mean, honestly, if you're not using a 18 foot long pole with a spear on the end, you can't call yourself a phalanx. In my book, yeah, that's you know. But they, I did like the fact that they, the Christians, had a you know paramilitary division named after an ancient Macedonian. Division. I like that. Which is another um, reason you should be listening to our Alexander the Great show. The life oh, I'm of sure. Alexander. I'm sure everyone listening to this probably does listen to our Alexander Good. the Great show. Good. I love you all. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the start of the Lebanese Civil War. Yeah. And, and as you said, it was a multifaceted um, civil war in Lebanon. It goes from 1975 to 1990. There's going to be at least 120,000 120, deaths. Uh, obviously, a lot more people were injured, and, uh, and almost 1 million people are going to end up leaving Lebanon because of this uh, prolonged fighting. So go back to July of 1958, and there's President Camille, is it Shimon? Shimon? Is that how am I saying it right? Because I tried to find YouTube. Uh, videos of him, but it was all in another language. I couldn't understand anything. So anyway, President Camille Shimon is attempting to do something that um, no one else has tried before in Lebanon. He's trying to break the stranglehold of Lebanese politics that have been exercised by um, traditional uh, political families in Lebanon. Like we we said, Rome was run by a relatively smaller group of families, um, oligarchy, if you will. That's pretty much what's going on in Lebanon, so he's trying to break this up. He's trying to to uh, shake up the system a little bit. So um, obviously, these families have worked very hard um, cultivating strong client-patron relations with the local communities. So when elections come around, they keep getting whatever family member elected, and they maintain power. So again, it's the haves and the have-nots. Now. Um, Camille Shimon was able to put up other candidates in 1957. Some of them won, some of them lost. But the point is, it pissed off the traditional powerful families enough where um, they're going to want some payback. They're going to want to get back at Sharon. And this is referred to the War of the Pashas, uh, the beginning of the Civil War. Now, in... um, Previous years, uh, tensions with Egypt had escalated in 1956 when you, because the non-aligned president, Camille, did not break off diplomatic relations with the Western powers after they attacked Egypt during the Suez Crisis. So a lot of the Muslims in the area wanted him, in the country wanted him to break off relations to show that their displeasure. And the one person who really got p- pissed off was the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. So um, Shimon is called pro-Western, even though that's not entirely accurate. He did sign several deals with the Soviet Union over the years, but Nasser obviously is uh, attacking him for these things. And he's also attacking him because of the Baghdad uh, uh, pact that was put together by um, a lot of the countries in the Middle East, including um, including London. Um, so um, <laughs> Nasir feels like everybody's uh, trying to attack him. He wants to be the big man in the Middle East, and he wants to um, he wants to see a rise of Arab nationalism, and he wants to lead that. But obviously, there's a lot of other countries, a lot of other leaders who want to, to be uh, the, the top dog as well. So he's fighting against all of them. Now, historically, Lebanon has had a pretty pathetic army, and so they're not going to be able to defend their own territory um, if they're attacked by someone else. That's just not something they either focus the funds on, or for whatever reason, it's just not a... Um, a very powerful force, which is why the PLO guerrilla factions are going to have a pretty easy time of entering Lebanon and setting up bases and that kind of thing. So you've got the, um, you've got Shimon's uh, Lebanese pan-Arabist Sunni Muslim prime minister, Rashid Kamari, 
supporting Nasir in 1956. Now, the Lebanese Muslims pushed the government. They wanted the government to join the United Arab Republic, you know, the one that was formed between Syria and Egypt. But the majority of the Lebanese, especially the Maronites, who were Christian, wanted to keep Lebanon as an independent nation with their own independent parliament. So President Camille um, Sharon is fearing that his government is going to topple. So what does he do? He invites the United States in and all he has to do, no matter what he says, he just has to use one specific word to get their attention. So he asks for help, claiming that the communists are trying to overthrow his country. Now, really, this is nothing more than a fight, a revolt, a war against former political bosses. But the fact that uh, Egypt and Syria um, have been... Um, using proxies to fight conflict within Libya, it's enough for him to, it's enough of a smokescreen for him to get the attention of the United States. And so he asked for, he asked for help. He mentions communism and that's enough. America is focused on this now and they are going to pay attention and they're going to keep an eye on this and probably find some way to intervene because as I've said before, America, this is the height of the Cold War in some ways. They are, they can only see communism and its threat, and they're willing to do anything to snuff it out before it can grow in the Middle East. I thought you were going to talk about the start of the Civil War. Oh, I was just doing the build-up because I was pretty excited about it. So um, in that year, a President, <laughs> President Shimon is unable to convince... Haven't, yeah. Haven't we spent the last hour and a half doing the build-up? Anyway, continue. Yeah. So no, I just I just found this really interesting. So President Shimon um, is unable to convince the Maronite army commander uh, Shahab. I'm sure I'm sh saying his name wrong. Shahab to use the armed forces against the Muslim demonstrators because obviously if he uses the uh, country's military against. Uh, the, his um, opposition with the internal politics, um, it's going to look bad. And besides, it's not a very good military. So it's going to uh, it's going to fall apart really quick and quickly lead to a civil war that he possibly can't win. So there is a counter revolution. Um, the prime minister, Kamari, does fall. Um, there's another one who takes his place, Pierre Guimael, um, who is also um, a Marcionite, but he is different. He's he obviously doesn't support Shimon. And so there's going to be a four-man cabinet running the country. So the president is having a lot of trouble with this, and he's not sure where to turn next. And things are quickly getting out of hand, and other countries are starting to pay attention. The Muslims of other countries are angry that, that their people aren't being treated right. And so this is starting to fall apart. And again, all he has to rely on is, is the United States coming in, which is why he pretty much lies and says it's going, it's the beginning of a communist takeover. Okay. So fast forward to the mid seventies, there are a number of skirmishes between the PLO and the phalangist forces, the Maronite paramilitary, but it all comes to a head in April of 1975 when the Phalanges forces killed 26 Fatah trainees on a bus. Mm. This is, by most accounts, this is the official start of the Lebanese Civil War. Right. And for the next year, there was um, horrific battles between the factions. Beirut, capital of Lebanon, was basically split into Christian and Muslim zones. Now, the Arab League, which then included all of the major Arab countries, authorised Syria, neighbour of Lebanon, obviously, to send peacekeeping troops to Lebanon to sort of calm everybody the fuck down. So Assad managed to broker a truce between the PLO and the Maronites in January of 1976. Mm. But... The violence continued to increase. Truce didn't last long. And in March of 76, the Christian Lebanese president, who was at this time Frangier, you mentioned before, uh, Frangier, he was a Maronite. Um, he basically formally asked Assad to send troops in to help restore calm. 
The uh, LNM, Lebanese National Movement, which was uh, run by the Druze, who we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on in more detail, had already asked Assad to get involved and send troops, but now it comes from the president himself. Now, Assad didn't want the Eisenhower Doctrine to be uh, called into effect at this stage, so he actually sent a memo to the US saying, listen... They've asked me to get in, just like you've been asked to get involved and you've sent in troops. Right. Now we've been asked to get involved. We're going to send in troops. Don't fucking intervene. All right? This is right. our thing, not your thing. Keep out of it. And 12,000 Syrian troops arrived in Lebanon in 1976. Now, surprisingly, perhaps, they initially sided with the Christians. Hmm. And I guess there were conservative Muslims as well that weren't part of the, you know, sort of PLO camp side of things. Um, now, in fact, there's a diplomatic cable uh, released by WikiLeaks from this area, part of their Kissinger cable release, where um, a US diplomat who went and met with the Lebanese government uh, is quoted in this cable as saying, if I got nothing else from my meeting with Frangier, Shamoun and Gemayel... It is their clear, unequivocal, and unmistakable belief that their principal hope for saving Christian necks is Syria. They sound like Assad is the latest incarnation of the Crusaders. (laughs) So he went in, invited by the Christians, to go in and help save them from the PLO, and... You know, this is this is a weird turn of events because the Israel uh, Israel was also supporting the Maronites. They were supplying them with um, arms and tanks and military advisors and personnel. So here you have the Syrians, the sworn enemies of the Israelis, working with the Israelis to support Christians against Muslims in their neighboring country of Lebanon. I'm confused. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And even the U.S. diplomat said, that, you know, confirmed that the Christians thought that Syria was the, the going to be the saviour. So they're all working together. A Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian all walk into a pub. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it actually happened. Now, right about this time, so this is like early uh, 76, right? Now, for about, uh, so since January of 76, there was a major refugee camp in East Beirut, that had been under siege by the Maronite militia, the Phalangists. And then on the 12th of August, 1976, the Maronite forces, supported by Syria, managed to overwhelm the Palestinian militia that was defending the refugee camp. It was the Tel Zatar refugee camp in East Beirut. There was about fifty to 60,000 Palestinian refugees in this camp. Um, and it's a, it's a massacre. The, the Maronites massacred somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 civilians, depending on Jeez. the reports that you read. Not militia men, but civilians. Right. Now, as you can imagine, this created a huge amount of criticism against Syria around the rest of the Arab League, mm-hmm. uh, especially from the Sunni majority in Syria itself. Now, Remember from earlier episodes, there were already suspicions on behalf of a lot of Sunni in particular that the Alawites were really secret Christians in the first place. Right. Because, you know, they sort of had this thing about the Trinity and it was all very murky and they had a... When the French came in, they went, oh, whoa, 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 we're, 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 we're pretty, pretty much Christian. Like, right. you know, look, we believe in the Trinity, you know, so, so, <clears throat> you know, when they're yeah, now, when Assad is aligning the Syrian military with the Christians to kill Muslims does not go down well back in the homeland. Mm. And Syria gets censored, by, basically censured by the Arab League. And in October 1976... They basically are forced to agree to a decision by the Arab League to, uh, to, to, to end the civil war. And Syria is, up, uh, is being told they have to uphold this uh, forced truce. No more fighting. Right. 
But they also, the Arab League, gave Syria a, an extended mandate to keep 40,000 troops in Lebanon. It's called the ADF, the Arab Deterrent Force, basically with the job of disentangling all of the different militias and combatants and sort of restoring the calm. Now, in that first part of the Lebanese Civil War, which only ran for two years, 75 to 77, 60,000 people were killed. But, of course, it didn't stop there. (laughs) Uh, The Syrians weren't able to maintain calm, even if they really wanted to. And the war quickly started up again. And this time, Assad shifted his allegiance to the Palestinian side, the PLO, allied with the PLO, the Shia and the Alawite militias that were in the country. Now, the question you might ask is why? Why did he change sides a couple of years in? Got any theories on that, Ray? No, please. Please tell me. Well, my theories are twofold, really. Number one, um, there was Sunni unrest, as I mentioned, at home. So, you know, and we know from previous episodes that... uh, Assad, and this is Hafez Assad, Al-Assad, we've, we're talking about here, and obviously had his own fair share of uh, civil unrest, for, particularly from the Sunni in mm-hmm. uh, Syria over the years, and obviously going on in the middle of this too, because 1982 we talked about the big the, the sort of attack, the Hamar massacre, this is in the middle right. of the Lebanese civil war, and it's partly based on what's going on in, in Lebanon as well. But he, he he wants to calm down the Sunni majority back in Syria, so he has to be seen to be fighting on the side of the Sunni in Lebanon. But also in 1977, uh, Nasser's uh, successor, Anwar al-Sadat, who's the new president of Egypt, uh, signs a detente with Israel. And, you know, I think that sort of worries Assad that maybe the Egyptians and the Israelis are going to gang up on him so he can't be fighting on the side of the Israelis so he joins the the Palestinian side. But anyway, so from this point on, Syria technically controls Lebanon politically and militarily. They have checkpoints on all the major roads manned by Syrians carrying AK-47s. And the Israelis are unhappy about this massive Syrian presence in Lebanon and the growing power of the PLO. So in a preemptive move in 1978, Israel invaded Lebanon. And then they invaded again in 1982, Oh, uh, and and this is when there was this huge massacre of civilians in more Palestinian refugee camps, uh, Sabra and Shatila. Um, big battles between the Israelis and the Syrians in Lebanon during this time. And the um, IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, basically manages to occupy southern Lebanon, keeping in mind in terms of a map, the southern border of Lebanon joins the northern border of Israel, and Israel basically takes a big chunk of Lebanon and occupies it. But uh, even though this is seen at the time as sort of a major victory for the Israelis and the and the US who are supporting them, they don't really drive Syria out of Lebanon. They don't destroy the PLO, and mm-hmm. this is where Hezbollah gets involved in the story. Now, Hezbollah is a Shia-based insurgent group closely allied with Iran. They're followers, or they originally they were followers of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who we've talked about in previous episodes. He's the guy that led the Iranian revolution, that, that kicked out the U.S.-controlled puppet dictator of the, the Shah, Reza Shah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards um, arrived in Lebanon from Iran with permission from the Syrians to train Hezbollah into a new paramilitary force. 
1985, Hezbollah's manifesto listed its objectives as the expulsion of the Americans, the French, and their allies from Lebanon, putting an end to any colonialist entity on our land. That's a tall order. But what a choice did they have? Well, and they succeeded, so there you go. Um, Now, in 1983, a year after the creation of Hezbollah, they supposedly, although they deny it, but they have been held responsible by the United States anyway for the 1983 bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut. I think I briefly mentioned this in an earlier episode where 241 U.S. Marines were killed. On the same day, there was another bombing which killed 58 French paratroopers. It's the deadliest single-day death toll for the U.S. Marine Corps since World War II, the deadliest single-day death toll for the U.S. Armed Forces since the first day of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, and the deadliest single terrorist attack on American citizens prior to September 11. And it is the deadliest single terrorist attack on American citizens overseas. Wow. To this very day. Right. Now, as I mentioned, Hezbollah, Iran and Syria all still to this day deny any involvement in the bombings. And a group called Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility. Mm-hmm. Now, Islamic Jihad sounds kind of fucking familiar in this day and age, right? Today we would associate that with an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS-ISIL offshoot. Right. <clears throat> but Hezbollah is still blamed. Uh, the US blamed Hezbollah for it. Anyway, those attacks essentially forced the US and the French to withdraw their troops from Lebanon. Mm. So Hezbollah, job well done. If that was their mission, they got it done. So you can't, you know, can't criticise them on that front, man. They said they were going to do it and they did it. They did it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the Lebanese civil... civil, Sorry, I was just going to wrap up. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, I think you already went past this, so it's not a big... I was just amazed how um, far that the Israelis were able to get... um, pushing into uh into the the war zone i think they got as far as beirut but anyways that's that's neither here nor there yeah look this show isn't about the lebanese civil war i don't want to spend too much so we've already spent fucking an hour and a half on it i just wanted to use it as an introduction into syria's involvement with lebanon um because it's all part and parcel of of what's going on now in syria obviously But so the civil war ran from 75 to 90. And as you said earlier, there was about 120,000 fatalities. As of 2012, 76,000 people were still displaced in Lebanon as a result of the war. There was also an exodus of 1 million people from Lebanon as a result of the war. Now, Hezbollah went on after this uh, to wage guerrilla war against the, um, the Israeli occupation of sub- southern Lebanon. Fucking, I can't talk. We're hour two, man. I already can't talk. Southern <laughs> Lebanon. They managed to force the IDF out in the year 2000, uh, which make, marks the first time an Arab armed group has defeated Israel, mm, which was a pretty big shock to the Israelis at the time. Keeping in mind that the Israelis are supported by the U.S. Uh, and, you know, to the tune of $3 billion a year. Yeah. <clears throat> but this is in 2000, the year before 9-11. So, you know, if it had been after 9-11, it may have been a different story. Now, Syria continued to control Lebanon until 2005. When something called, well, that the United States anyway calls the Cedar Revolution happened. Cedar for the cedar tree on their flag, right. obviously. Not because they were using cedar to light cigars, which is what you're supposed to do with cedar. Ah. Hmm. I was wondering why, f- why mine came wrapped up in cedar. Okay. On the 14th of February, 
St. Valentine's Day, 2005, the uh, former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, a Lebanese-Saudi billionaire, uh, was assassinated in a motherfucker truck bomb attack. Right. Uh, I, I read that it was the equivalent of 220 tons of TNT. Oh, my God. It killed 21 people, wounded nearly 100. Also, the former Minister of the Economy and Trade, Basel Flyan, also later died uh, from injuries from the blast. Now... This is really interesting to try and dig down into this. Now, take note of the timing. This is 2005, so mm-hmm. four years or three and a half years really after 9-11. It's in the middle of Bush's fucking war on terror. It's a couple of years after the invasion of Iraq. Um, this is where Bush, Cheney and Rumsfeld and the US across the board are all out trying to take down the axis of evil, Bush's axis of evil. Right. right, which Trump is thinking about adding North Korea to. I heard that on the news today. That's a weird axis. I don't know how you draw a line through yeah, really these countries. <laughs> North Korea. Yeah. Did you hear that he invited the entire Senate to the White House for a briefing on North Korea? No. That happened today. So who knows what announcements are going to be made. Right. Uh, Look, I think nothing. I mean, honestly, as I've said a number of times before, the US doesn't like to attack countries that can actually fight back. And despite their recent failure of launching a rocket, it's fairly well accepted, I think, that North Korea have nukes. And now they might not be able to hit the US with those nukes. Their ICBMs probably aren't powerful enough, but they can probably hit South Korea. They can probably hit uh, Australia, (laughs) maybe Japan. So, I mean, maybe Trump doesn't give a fuck about us down here, but uh, I just can't see. I think there'll be a lot of saber rattling and threats and economic sanctions. And I don't think the US are really going to launch an attack on a country that can actually fight back. It's very un-American to pick an even fight. You gotta pick well, fights with countries that don't have weapons. We learned that, that from that, the British. Well, but yeah, my, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. Here's what you're saying: is you're saying Trump is not that stupid. But here's the other part of it: <laughs> if their leader with the weird hair is really that mentally unstable, how much how much uh, saber rattling do you have to do to push him too far? That's my thing. But anyway, we're yeah. getting, we're getting off topic. Yeah. Well, look, I, I I think Kim and Trump are about as equally as um, mentally deranged as each other. Um, mm. But I again, I don't think Kim is suicidal. I mean, for Kim to launch a preemptive attack on anyone uh, would be yeah. tantamount to suicide. I don't think he's suicidal. I don't right. think Trump is suicidal either. And even if he is, I don't think you know necessarily his uh, generals in the Pentagon are suicidal. Although, as we all know now, Trump can authorise a nuclear strike without... There are no checks and balances. I posted a great uh, link on... I'm not sure if it was our Facebook page for this show or the Cold... I think it was the Cold War show the other day. It's a recent Radiolab podcast uh, talking about the history uh, about the ability of US presidents to launch nuclear strikes and how there are absolutely no checks and balances on them. Um, he orders it and with, you know, and it gets done like within 10 minutes. Right. No, there's no oversight at all for a US president who launches a nuclear strike. Who came up with um, that one? Jesus. Uh, yeah, the US, man, the US military. <laughs> I mean, the, the rationale behind it is that back in the early days of the Cold War, they figured that if the Soviets launched a preemptive, preemptive strike, they would be targeting U.S. nukes and that there was probably six or seven minutes before the sirens mm-hmm. went off, before you know your nukes got right. destroyed. So six or seven minutes doesn't give you any time for checks and balances. Ah, so the, go, go, go. Go, go, go. So the president would give the order, the two guys with the two keys would turn the keys, boom, and it would go. Um, 
So that was the rationale behind it, and and it, it, the, it hasn't changed. That's still how it works today. Trump can order a nuclear strike at the drop of a hat, and no one can intervene, apart from the guys with the keys. Right. Uh, the guys with the keys can say, I'm not going to do it. Now, this actually happened at least twice in the late 20th century, but it was Russians who were given the order to launch strikes against the US. And the guy with this actual key and the finger on the button said, no, I'm not going to do it. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, one case I heard about recently, they, the Russians picked up signals that the US had launched preemptive strikes against them. Mm-hmm. The I think it was like a nuclear sub commander was given the order uh launch a retaliatory strike against the US. He gave the order to his guy and his guy said no. And 10 minutes later, they realized that what they thought was a preemptive strike by the US was actually just a computer glitch. They banged the computer on the side and righted itself and everyone realized they almost destroyed the world. So the fate of the human race, to a large extent, depended on that one Russian nuclear sub technician with a key who said no. Yet. Yet. All of his military training was don't Mm -hmm. question orders. In fact, the the, the Radiolab episode that I mentioned is fascinating. It's just called Nukes if you want to go and Google it. Radiolab Nukes. It's a story. They tell the story of a guy, American, um, been in the military for a long time, you know, uh, several commendations, ended up getting a job as one of the guys with the keys to launch the nukes. Oh, and during during his orientation, he asked the question, uh, what checks and balances are there in place between the president giving the order and it coming to me? Like, I'd just like to know. Yeah, that's a fair question. You know. Who is who's reviewing the president's sanity? What if the president's drunk? What if the president's just crazy? Uh, I, I, you know, I just want to know. I'm not. I, I will do it if you give right. me the order. I will do it. I'm not saying I. Will. I just want to know for my own peace of mind. What are the checks and balances? And they said you're fired. You can't even. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You can't even ask that question. You're out. Boom. Right. He's gone. Maybe Trump is just trying to impress his wife who won't move back in with him in the White House, wants to show how manly he is and gives the order. But yeah. Well, they, they were talking about how when Nixon was president during the middle of the whole Watergate thing, he was drinking heavily in the Oval Office every night, getting shit-faced drunk. And he was obviously batshit crazy as it was. Uh, he's batshit crazy drunk. Uh, desperate. Yeah, and, you know, he knows his career is over, his reputation is ruined, it's all about to go down the toilet. Uh, he could have fucking pressed the button. This is in the middle of the Cold War, right? Anyway. Yeah. Back to back to 2005. Yeah. So, uh, big bomb goes off, kills the former prime minister and the former uh, econ- economic minister. Now, this sparked huge demonstrations that seemingly united large number of citizens across Lebanon um, to demand the removal of Syria. Syria was blamed for this bomb. Now, why Syria would need or want to blow up this guy, never really explained. They control the country. Why would they want to blow up a former prime minister Never really explained. There are other ways they could have taken him out. But this is interesting for an Australian connection. Within hours of the assassination, mm-hmm. Lebanese prosecutors, prosecutors issued warrants for the arrest of six Australians. Oh, bullshit. Who flew out of Beirut to Sydney three hours after the explosion. According to the Lebanese prosecutors, the Australians were travelling without luggage and the seats that they occupied mm-hmm. had tested positive for traces of TNT. Ooh. What's the, now, what's the Australian version of the CIA? ASIO. Okay. The Australian 
Security Intelligence Organization or Signals and Intelligence Organization. Can't remember Signals or Security. I don't know. ASIO. Anyway, ASIO. Right. Now, the Australian Federal Police interviewed these guys when they landed in Sydney uh, and found that, oh, they do have luggage. So <laughs> that was wrong. Right. Now, the sniffer dogs did find traces of explosives on the aircraft seats that the guys were sitting on. Uh-huh. But the test swabs of the men themselves tested negative. And within 48 hours, the Australian Federal Police absolved them of any involvement in the assassination. I imagine the Lebanese were not happy. No, they weren't. But, you know, this is a really weird, suspicious story that does not pass the bullshit filter in my mind. (laughs) So the Australian Federal Police are like, well, yes, uh, we got uh, traces of explosives on their seats, but nah, they're all good. Uh, nothing to do with them. Well, I'm so, I just got to ask, I mean, is there sometimes just normally explo- the trace traces of explosives in seats and that's normal, that's okay, that's not a cause for holding someone? Now, I know this is the bullshit filter and we're not going to do conspiracy theory stuff, but my guess would be, and I don't have any evidence to back this up, so I'm not going to say this is what happened, but my guess would be mm-hmm. that these six Australian nationals were quite possibly involved, quite possibly working for a different organisation of some sort, and the Australian Federal Police and ASIO were told, let it go. Yeah. Turn, Let turn it, it go. No Let one, go. no one was ever convicted for the bombing. Um, there was a couple of Syrians that were held in right. prison for a while, for several years actually in Lebanon. They were eventually Damn. let go. Uh, the Americans said, "Ah, let them go," and they let them go. No one was ever convicted. There was no evidence. Now, here's where we are going to. Uh, just, I mean, this is as close as I'm going to get to conspiracy theory stuff. In March right. 2005, right. uh, so a couple of weeks after the bombing, the New York Post's security affairs and intelligence reporter Niles Latham wrote, U.S. intelligence sources told the Post that the CIA and European intelligence services were quietly giving money and logistical support to organisers of the anti-Syrian protests to ramp up pressure on Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. The secret program is similar to previous support of pro-democracy movements in Georgia and Ukraine, which also led to peaceful demonstrations. Mm. Now, I know the New York Post is a Murdoch paper and therefore inherently not reliable, but here's my theory. When a right-wing paper posts (laughs) something like that, yeah. It's more believable than a left-wing paper reported it. Not that there are many left-wing papers in existence anymore. The, right. the papers that people think are left-wing are owned by huge corporations that are purely capitalist, so they're not really left-wing papers. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so there you go. So these, these huge um, protests, perhaps funded by a whole range of... Uh, anti-Syrian interests, and we'll explore that a little bit more as we go. Where are we up to time-wise? An hour! Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll fucking do it, man. Um, Yeah, we went over on the first one, so. Yes, we did. Uh, I've got another review I'll read, though, before we go. Uh, This one is from, again, the United States. Yes. Uh, ATLSC grad, Atlas... Grad, Atlas, I don't know. Uh, Five star review. If you like going deep, Atlas Sagrad writes. Um, Folks, if you've not listened to Ray and Cam's other podcasts, well, you should. But this one is a good introduction to their fun style and educated pontificating. Cam keeps an open mind on almost everything, which allows for an unbiased view on the subject matter. Plus, his love of music has reawakened my own. 
Ray yeah. jumps in as needed and provides good overviews and throws in the occasional inappropriate joke to keep the hits coming. Great topic to start with. Download and listen. Thank you, Atlas Sagrad. Send us an email to whatever our email address is. Uh, if you can work it out <laughs> with your address, remind us why, and we will send you which uh, show your address. A thank you. Yes. Gift. Uh, on the next episode of the Syria Bullshit Filter, we're going to get back to Assad, talk about his relationship with George H.W. Bush, uh, his struggles with his brother, Rifayet. Um We're going to talk about his death and the rise of his second son, Bashar, as president. Was it originally intended to take over, but did... We're going to talk about uh, the Kurds. We're going to talk about some WikiLeaks cables all coming up in the next episode of The Bullshit Filter.